second session for tonight is called Playing by the Rules and we're going to talk about what is, what are the rules by which we live our life? What are the, the rules by which we play the game of life? You know, every game that we've ever invented has rules, right? If there are no rules, there is no game. Isn't that right? So every game that we've ever invented has rules by which to play. And uh, our lives are no dis- different. We live at a time when the world is changing very rapidly. And our Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, mentioned this in 2016 in an interview on ABC Radio. He said, we are living in uncertain times. We knew that, right? We are living in uncertain times. We are experiencing unprecedented changes globally at unprecedented speed. How'd you like that? So he's just acknowledging something that we all see, that there are unprecedented changes taking place. It seems like they're taking place all places around the globe and and the change is taking place at an unprecedented speed. I mean, the changes are moving so fast you can barely catch your breath. And as the world is changing, the values by which our societies are run and our countries are run are also changing. And we want to know, is that for good or for bad? I mean, sometimes changes need to be made for the better. But sometimes changes are made even when we don't yet know what the outcome of those changes might be. And uh, what we want to talk about tonight is who decides what is right and what is wrong. Who decides what is right and what is wrong? There's a Bible verse in Proverbs 16.25. It says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end, but its end is the way of death. In other words, there are sometimes we might philosophize together and and think, well, this is a good direction to go in, according to human wisdom. But the Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Jesus once said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And he's the way that leads to life. And when we talk about who decides what is right and wrong, I think we mentioned this before, How do we determine today what's right and wrong? Do we just go to social media and find out, you know, what the buzz is? What's, you know, what what are most people saying? Uh, You notice when, uh, you know, something occurs in the world, whether it's in politics or in the world of entertainment or sport or whatever, you know, something dramatic happens and, and there's a flurry of comments on that thing that happened. And they're usually pretty short, aren't they? And then suddenly the the wave turns on the other side and there's a flurry of comments against what was said before. How do we determine what is right and wrong? Do Do we let social media decide? Do we just take an opinion poll? Is that how we determine what is right and wrong? Do we just take what the politicians serve up? All of these things change over time, don't they? Opinion polls change over time. Politicians change over time. Even your mind changes over time. So how can we know what is true and what is not? The Bible describes a time in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 3 and 4. It says, For the time will come 
when they will not endure sound doctrine. That means they will not endure sound teaching. People will turn away from sound teaching. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Sometimes, you know, you might like to surround yourself with people who will say, yes, I'll do what you want me to do. But that's not always what we need to hear, is it? And so the time will come when they would turn away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. We want to talk about the law of God tonight, the Ten Commandments. And we have a problem with lawlessness in our world, of course. That's why we have the sin problem. But I want to ask the question tonight, is the church in part to blame? And you might say, well, that's a bit of a ridiculous conclusion. How could the church be responsible for lawlessness? Well, there are many today in the Christian church who say that God's laws no longer apply. Some say that his commandments have been abolished. Others might say his commandments are no longer relevant. And some say his commandments are just impossible to keep. How should we relate to the law of God and to God's commandments? Before we dive into that question, I want to share an illustration with you from a few years ago. Um, back in 1993, there was a woman, Sandra Gregory was her name, and she was caught at an airport in Thailand smuggling heroin. She was caught and she was uh, convicted and she was sentenced to life imprisonment, which in Thailand is 25 years. She was sentenced to 25 years in jail. She took responsibility for her actions. She was thoroughly repentant of what she had done. She served as a model prisoner. And then the king of Thailand, who I think recently passed away last year, but that king of Thailand granted her a royal pardon. After seven years of serving in jail, she was granted a royal pardon and she was free to go. Here's the question. Now that she has received a royal pardon, is she free to smuggle drugs now? That may sound a little bit of a ridiculous question because the obvious answer is just because you've been granted a royal pardon doesn't give you permission to smuggle drugs now. And we would recognise the absurdity of the idea that yes, you have permission to smuggle drugs now that you've been given a royal pardon. That's not the case. However, some take that view with the law of God. Some reason that because we have been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are no longer bound by the law of God. And we want to have a look at what the Bible says on this subject. In Romans 4.15 it says, <clears throat> For where there is no law, there is no transgression. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
Okay, what does the word, what does transgression mean? Transgression is the breaking or violation of any law. So it says where there is no law, there's no transgression. So if, after we've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no law, then it's impossible for us to transgress. And that means we could live as we please. Which seems a little bizarre, because it seems to me that if a person becomes a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to become more law-abiding rather than less law-abiding. Transgression is the breaking or the violation of God's law. We're going to talk about the Ten Commandments tonight. The Ten Commandments were written, they were spoken audibly by God in the presence of his people. They were then written by God with his finger on tablets of stone, representing their enduring nature. And of course, the Ten Commandments, there are ten of them. We want to know what do they say. First of all, let's have a look at what are the rules? What are the Ten Commandments? We find them in Exodus 20, verses 3 to 17. But I actually want to read a little bit from the Bible. Usually we're quoting the Bible on the screen here. But I want to go to Exodus 20 and just read the first few verses because though the first commandment really appears in verse 3, I want you to notice what God says before we get to verse 3. Exodus 20, verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. So God basically was reminding them, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. In other words, you were in bondage, but I delivered you. Therefore, have no other gods before me. In other words, before God gives them the first commandment, he reminds them that he's the God who set them free. They were in bondage in Egypt. They were literally in bondage in Egypt as slaves, the children of Israel. And you may, I don't know if you know the story of how God, through Moses, called Pharaoh to let his people go. But Pharaoh didn't want to let them go. And plague after plague fell on Pharaoh and he'd say, yes, I'll let them go. No, I won't let them go. And he didn't want to let the the slaves go. And eventually, God told them to put the blood of a lamb over their doorpost. And because of the sacrifice of a lamb and that they were under the blood of a lamb, they were delivered from Egypt. And then God calls them to keep his commandments. In other words, God is saying, I set you free, I have delivered you, therefore don't have another gods before me. Why? Because other gods are going to put you back into slavery. Other gods are going to keep you in bondage. I'm the God who set you free, have no other gods before me. Second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, you shall not bow down to them. He's particularly talking about worshipping images and the reason God doesn't want us to worship images or statues is because number one, they're the works of our own hands. So who is greater, the statue or the one who made the statue? You know, God doesn't want us to worship the the work of our own hands, we'd be worshipping something that we had made. Secondarily, nothing we could make would be great enough to represent the God of heaven. You know the Bible says 
the heaven of the heavens cannot contain thee. That makes God pretty big, because the heavens are pretty big. And so, if you think about it, God already made something in his image. He made humanity in God's image. A living image of a living God. And God says, don't make a carved image and bow down to it to worship. That's the second commandment. The third one is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. God wants us to honour his name. Of course, taking the Lord's name in vain is very common. You see it all the time on the TV and in the movies. It's just part of daily conversation. That's certainly how it was in my house when I was growing up. But God wants us to honour his name. He is our Heavenly Father. That should mean something to us. The fourth commandment says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. God set aside a whole day each week to connect with us and for us to connect with him. And these first four commandments all deal with our relationship to God. Have no other gods before me. Don't bow down to images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. They all have relation to our relationship with God and the, the, how to keep that relationship strong. Then we go to commandment number five. Honour your father and your mother. God is trying to help us to understand that we should respect our parents. They are, they're the ones that brought us into the world. Number six, you shall not murder. God values life. God is the one who created life. He wants us to value life as well. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. God values marriage. God invented marriage. Marriage has been under attack, but God invented marriage and God provides a commandment to protect marriage. You shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. God wants to protect that which another possesses. You shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You should not lie. God wants us to respect honesty, be honest in our dealings with one another. And finally, number 10 says, you shall not covet your neighbour's house You shall not covet your neighbour's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbour's. In other words, don't desire something that belongs to somebody else. Interesting thing about the 10th commandment is it's in the head and in the heart. All the others are do this or don't do this. But the 10th commandment is about what your desire is, what what you're thinking about. And he's saying, not only do I want you to do or not do these things, I don't even want you to think about it. I don't even want you to think about it. And so he's saying, you know, before you steal something, you have to want it, don't you? And he's saying, don't even think about wanting it. Don't even think about wanting your neighbour's wife. If you don't think about it, you won't end up committing adultery. If you don't think about taking something that's not yours, you won't end up stealing it and so forth. And so those are the Ten Commandments and they have stood the test of time. They're the foundation 
for many of the laws of our land. They're the foundation for many of the laws of Western culture. If you go today to the Supreme Court building in the United States of America, they have a copy of the Ten Commandments at the top of the building. Don't know if you noticed that before. But they are there. And uh, of course, you know, in a court of law, I don't know if they still do this, but they used to say, place your hand on the Bible and what do they say? They promised to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Not sure if they still do that, but in Exodus 31, 18, it says, And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, this is God talking to Moses, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. If you could, can you imagine if you had those tablets of stone here? You know, if we had them in our hands, how much they would be worth? Tablets of stone that God had written on. How, how many things do we have that God's written on? I mean, they would be phenomenally valuable. Uh, they would be priceless, no doubt. Um, you know, have you ever seen that film, Raiders of the Lost Ark, with Indiana Jones? I have. But uh, in that film, of course, they're looking for the lost ark, and in the film they find it, but they've never found the lost ark. The, the ark is still lost. It's somewhere around Jerusalem, hidden in a cave somewhere, but the ark is still lost. But people would love to find the ark, that golden box. And if you think about it, the whole nation of Israel, their capital was Jerusalem. In Jerusalem there was Mount Zion. On top of the mount you have the temple mount, then you have the, the, the temple you had the courtyard, you had the holy place, and you had the most holy place. And in the most holy place was this golden box. But it was what's inside the box that made it valuable. People are looking around for the golden box, but inside the box was contained the Ten Commandments. The commandments of God written by God himself, spoken by God himself. That's what makes all of that valuable. And you know what? We don't need to find the ark because we know what's in it. We know what's in the ark of the covenant. We have the Ten Commandments in our Bibles today. Thanks to God preserving it that way. <clears throat> so here's a question some people ask. Well, the Ten Commandments, aren't they really just for the Jewish people? Did the Ten Commandments exist before Mount Sinai. Notice what God says about Abraham in Genesis 26 verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. God is saying of him, saying of Abraham that he kept his commandments. So evidently there were commandments before God wrote them on the tablets of stone. In Genesis 39 verse 9, Joseph had been sold by his brothers into slavery. He'd gone to Egypt. He was working as a slave in Egypt. He was working in Potiphar's house, one of the officers of the Pharaoh. And Potiphar's wife took a shine to Joseph and wanted him to sleep with her. But Joseph feared God and he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, he could have said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? because it's Potiphar's wife, right? 
But Joseph knew that the greater sin would be to sin against God because God had said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And apparently Joseph knew this even before it was written on the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone. In Exodus chapter 16, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? This is before we get to Mount Sinai. Before God speaks the Ten Commandments. So evidently God had commandments, the children of Israel knew them, and the Ten Commandments being written on stone was something of a reminder for them. Romans chapter 2 verse 13 says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. God expects for us to obey him. And I'll tell you why. Keeping the law of God is not some kind of legalistic thing. Keeping the law of God means that life's better for me, it's better for you, it's better for those who live around me. You know, we could ask people, would you like for your neighbour to keep the Ten Commandments or would you like for your neighbour to break the Ten Commandments? And I guarantee people want their neighbour to be keeping the Ten Commandments. Even if they don't want to keep them themselves, they want their neighbour to keep the commandments because they know they're safer if the guy next door is keeping the commandments. God intends for this to be a blessing to our society. Jesus himself, who came as our saviour, came to die on the cross for us. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's got to be the motivation. God is saying, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's God's intention. Well, you remember one of the claims was, well, it's just impossible to keep this, you know, Ten Commandments. And I would probably say to you, if you're attempting to do that in your own strength, you're probably right. We are serial sinners. We're sinaholics, right? Left to our own devices. But when we come into the saving power of Christ, when we accept his grace and his death on the cross, when we accept his Holy Spirit and we become born again, by the power of the Spirit of Christ, we can do all things. The Bible tells us in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Without his strength, no, probably not. But with his strength, we can do all things. That's what makes the difference. Jesus summed the Ten Commandments up into two laws. Somebody came to Jesus and says, what's the most important commandment? What's the most important one? And Jesus said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. When Jesus was asked, which is the most important commandment? He says, love the Lord your God. And the second, love your neighbour as yourself. Those two commandments. There's a principle in the Bible. The Bible declares that God is love. We mentioned that earlier in the series. God is love. That's the one principle upon which God governs the universe. Then he breaks that down into those two principles Jesus just mentioned. Love to God and love to your fellow beings. Right? So God is love and he wants us to express that love too. Love for God, love for our fellow human beings. Then those two are split into those ten. Right? The ten commandments. Those are the details. 
And uh, then we see those played out in the life of the believer. August Strong, who was a theologian, he said, law is only the transcript of God's nature. In other words, the law of God tells us something about who God is. You know, if you left the shores of Australia and you went to other countries, you will notice that there are different laws in different countries. And the laws of those countries tell you something about the values of those countries. The laws in Australia tell you something about the values of Australia. Likewise, the law of God tells you something about the character of God. It's very interesting to note that when you look at descriptions in the Bible that talk about what God is like in terms of his character, you also can see that there's a comparison where the law is described in the same words. So for instance, God is described as good in Luke 18, 19. But the law is also described as good. God is described as holy in Isaiah. But the law also is described as holy. God is described as just, perfect. He's described as love. He's described as righteous, truth, pure, spiritual, unchangeable and eternal. And the law is also described as all of those things. So it's quite fascinating to note that the characteristics of God, the same words are used for the characteristics of the law. By the way, if you want the uh, notes that go along with this presentation, that list is going to be on it. So you, know, you can take the picture on the phone if you want to, but they'll be on the notes that we send out for this one. Luke 16, 17 says, Jesus is speaking, he says, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. And that's basically like the crossing of a T or the dotting of an I. He's saying it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for an, for an element of the law to, to fail. In Deuteronomy 5.29, he says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children for how long? Forever. God is yearning for us to understand. God is not arbitrary in his giving of the commandments. He knows that they are designed, he designed them, he designed them to protect the relationships that are most important. Our relationship with God, our relationship with our parents, our brothers and sisters, our children, our spouse. God designed these laws to protect those relationships. It's kind of like a safety barrier. You know, some of you have had kids, some of you are kids, right? We've all been kids, I guess, at some point. And maybe you had a backyard and there was a fence around the backyard. Well, why was there a fence around the backyard? Well, the, there was a fence around the backyard or maybe the front yard too because mum and dad didn't want you running about in the middle of the road because they knew that that could be dangerous. And so God, or your parents, put a boundary around where you could play. And that boundary was not there because they didn't like you. It was there because they loved you. God put those boundaries in place for our protection. Notice this, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep and always keep all my commandments. Does God want us to keep some of his commandments some of the time? I mean, they're called the Ten Commandments. 
You know, they're not the ten suggestions. Um, These are God's commandments. He knows that this provides for a safer and healthier society. And that's why he gave them to us. What is the purpose of the law? We've talked a number of things already, but in Romans 3.20 it says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, we probably should make this very evident. This is why we've talked about Jesus on the cross and the plan of salvation. We don't get to heaven by keeping the law, right? We are not saved by keeping the law. The law gives us a knowledge of what sin is. We look at the law We know what sin is, we recognise we have sinned and we go running off to Jesus for salvation. That's why the law is so important. The law tells us our need of a saviour. The law tells us our need of a saviour and then we go running off to Jesus. The law doesn't clean us up. The Bible actually uses this illustration of a mirror. It says the law is like a mirror. We look into that mirror and we see we've got dirt on our face. The law, that mirror, tells us, hey, we're dirty, we need to be cleansed. But you don't use the mirror to cleanse yourself, do you? Well, I hope you don't. Sometimes we look into the, the mirror, it tells us we need cleansing, but we go then to get washed, and Jesus is the one who provides that washing. The law tells us we need a saviour, then we go to Jesus for that salvation. That's the importance of the law. It's The law does not save us. We keep the law because God asks us to, out of love. But the law does not save us. Jesus saves us. Romans 7, 7. Paul writes, I would have not known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Where's he quoting from? The Ten Commandments. He's saying, I wouldn't have known what the law was or I wouldn't have known what sin was except through the law. It has an important role to play. And then, of course, like I said, when we recognise that we have sinned and we need a saviour, the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's going to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would it make any sense if God was going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness to say, now get back out there in the mud? I mean, why would he cleanse you if he just wants you to get dirty all the time? Matthew 1.21. What is he saving us from? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The reason Jesus came into the world was to save us. Save us from what? He saves us from sin. You might think, well, he saves us from death. Yeah, but death is just a consequence of sin. A pretty severe consequence, but it's no obstacle for God because he can resurrect people. He's the author of life in the first place. Death is a severe symptom of sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus came into the world to save us from sin and if sin is the transgression of the law and Jesus saves us from sin, what is the result? Obedience. God saves us from our sins. Jesus saves us from our sins. That's what it says 
here in Matthew 121, that we might obey him. We mentioned before that the Bible says very clearly sin is the transgression of the law and so we've all sinned and we know that and that's why we need a saviour. Now somebody might say, but doesn't the Bible say that we're not under law, we're under grace, right? That is true. The Bible does indeed say that we are under grace. What does that mean? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it's not what you do, it's what God has done for you. That's how you're saved. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. We are not saved by what we do, we're saved by what Jesus has done for us and our acceptance of that. Nevertheless, having accepted that salvation, God calls us to obedience. Notice what Romans 6, 1 and 2 says. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? We're under grace, right? Paul is saying, should we continue in sin? He's very, very clear here and very uh, deliberate. He says, certainly not. He's putting a double negative in the, in the original language. No way, he's saying. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? He continues a little later in the same chapter. He says, for sin shall not have dominion over you. That's why we're not under law. We're under grace because we're not under that law that leads to sin leading to death. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Paul is very clear that the fact that we're under grace does not mean that we live lawless lives. That's not what it means. He continues, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death, or of obedience leading to righteousness. That's what God is calling us to. <clears throat> Another might say, well, we're under the new covenant, aren't we? Aren't those tablets of stone the old covenant? You know, that was broken. That's the old covenant. In fact, uh, you remember that golden box? What was that called? The Ark of the, the Covenant. That's right. Why? Because the covenant was placed inside it. That was the Ten Commandments. That's the old covenant. Surely we're under the new covenant, the Bible says. Well, yes, we are. In the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, it talks about the new covenant. But I need you to understand that it's quoting from the Old Testament. In other words, the new covenant first appears in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah. Notice what Paul, the writer of Hebrews, says. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah, sorry, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's quoting there from Jeremiah in the Old Testament. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the children of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. In other words, God is trying to get us to understand he doesn't want the law simply on old tablets of stone, he wants them in our mind, he wants them in our hearts. He wants us to understand what his law is all about. You know, Jesus was with his disciples and he said to them, no longer do I call you servants, 
but rather I have called you friends. Why? Because a servant doesn't understand what his master is doing, he just obeys. Jesus saying, I want you to understand why you obey. I want to put my laws in your mind, in your heart. I want you to own these values, right? Not just blindly obey them. If you're married or if you've ever been married, how would you like a spouse that says, I'm going to keep the law that says you shall not commit adultery, but I want you to know I want to do it. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do the deed, but I want you to know it's, it's still, you know, my desire is to do otherwise. No, God wants us to own that. In fact, Jesus elevated the law. When he spoke about the law in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whosoever looks upon a woman to lust after her in his heart has already committed adultery. Jesus said, it's up here, in the mind and in the heart. So he understood that. He said, it's one thing to say, I'm going to rigidly keep the law, but it's another thing altogether to embrace the law in your heart and in your mind and say, these are the values I want to live my life by. Sometimes we get uh, caught up in the Bible because there are places in the Bible that says this law is no longer applicable. And we say, ah, there you go, God's getting rid of the law. No, there is a ceremonial law and there is a moral law. The Ten Commandments are what we would call the moral law. There were many laws given in the economy of God's people, the children of Israel, that were to do with sacrifices and offerings. There were blood sacrifices, there were... Uh, there was a law of, of circumcision, which was a male blood sacrifice. All of the blood sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, who was the ultimate sacrifice. At Jesus' death on the cross, those sacrificial laws met their fulfilment. If you've ever been to a Christian church, maybe you've been there for a wedding or a funeral or some other event. Did they sacrifice an animal up the front? Now, we don't do that anymore, but that's what they used to do in the ancient services day by day. Notice what Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians 7.19. He makes a distinction here. He says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. In other words, Paul himself says, look, whether you're circumcised or whether you're not circumcised, that's not the point. But keeping the commandments of God matters. Paul understood the difference and he made that distinction. John 15 verse 10. What about Jesus? As a Christian, I am a follower of Christ. What did Jesus do? Jesus said, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus principle was to obey the commandments of God. And we've already read that he's called us to do the same. So if I'm a follower of Christ, I'm going to be one who wants to be obedient to God, because that's what Jesus did. Notice these words. 
1 John 2, 3 and 4, it says, Now by this we know that we know him, talking about God, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's a powerful phrase. I didn't make that up. That's in the Bible. The Bible says, he who does not keep his commandments, but they say, I know God, but I'm not willing to keep his commandments. They're a liar and the truth is not in them. Notice what else he says, 1 John 5, 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God. Wow, this is a John summing up. What is the love of God? This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. If, we, if our relationship to God's commandments is that we find them to be a burden for us, then maybe our relationship with the God who gave us the commandments is not quite right. If we have a hard time saying to God, God, I want to obey you, we're not talking about, let's put this on pause. Some people wonder about, oh, but how are we ever going to perform? How are we ever going to keep the commandments? Listen. Here's the first question, do you want to? Don't don't worry too much about how you're going to be able to keep all the commandments. Do you want to? Because if you want to, God will enable you to keep his commandments. The Bible says, by faith Christ can dwell in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And as that happens, God will enable us. He'll give us the power to be able to keep his commandments. But the question is, do we want to? Psalm 119, 165. Great peace of those who love thy law, who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. There's a great peace in walking with God and wanting to obey his commandments. Nothing can replace that kind of peace of walking with God. David said in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Remember we talked about the new covenant was the law in the heart and in the mind. That's what David's saying. David is saying, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Once again, Jesus says, if you love me, (coughs) keep my commandments. You see, in the great plan of salvation to save you and I, God could not ignore sin. He couldn't just say, oh well, it doesn't matter. Because when a lie had been told, when something had been stolen, when murder had occurred, God couldn't just push that aside and say, it doesn't matter, it's okay. How would you feel if somebody committed adultery with your spouse and God says, it's okay? Or if something was stolen from your house, don't worry, it's okay. Or somebody's lied to your face. Why would we want a God that says those things are okay? We want a God that upholds those values. God could not ignore sin, but he couldn't change the law either. And so what God did was he sent Jesus into the world to live a perfect life, to live a law-abiding life, and then to die for the sins that others had committed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, 
should not perish but have everlasting life. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it was probably written last. You would think that if John, who wrote that book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you would think that if John had got the impression that we ought not to be keeping God's commandments, how could he write these words? He's talking here prophetically, looking at the end of time. He says, the dragon, that's the devil, was enraged with the woman, that's the church. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Apparently, there'll be a people at the end of time who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. A couple of chapters later in Revelation 14, it puts it this way. This is how the last of those three angels' messages ends. It says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. God will have a people who will keep his commandments. The question is, do we want to be a part of that people? Do you want to say tonight, God, I don't have the power, but by your grace I want to obey your will. Lord, I've broken your law. I'm in need of a saviour. And in accepting Jesus Christ, I want to follow Christ. I want to walk in his ways. And as he kept your commandments, Lord, I want to keep your commandments. Is that your decision tonight? Is that what you want to do? Just raise your hand high to heaven. God sees. Let's pray before we close our meeting tonight. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for providing a moral code for us to live by a moral code that has stood the test of time, that has delivered to us an ordered and moral society. And yet we are now wondering whether that law still has any value. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who paid our debt because we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can get to heaven by our law keeping because we've all broken the law. We'll only ever get to heaven through Jesus. But Jesus says to us, if you love me, keep my commandments. Lord, may it be the will of every person in this room, every person hearing my voice, that we would desire to say, yes, Lord, we want to keep your commandments because we love you, because it's the right thing to do, because it's better for us and those who live with us. Please bless us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. Strengthen us inside to enable us to walk in your ways. May we choose to keep your commandments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.